But what investment has brought to Haiti is the immiseration of the small Haitian farmers. What investment has brought in Latin America and uh, most other countries has been the displacement of the peasantry, their proletarianization, their being thrown into This is hell. Boo! Hi, it's producer Alex, back from the dead. Today's Monday, October 31st. It is Halloween in America. Let me unmute my horror ambiance. Ooh. Hi. Your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio host Chuck is currently being haunted by work. He's taking the week off the radio show to work on the radio show and get his teeth looked at by dentist. Uh, he's back next week with all new interviews. Uh, this week, we are playing Staff Picks, and then Chuck is back at the end of the week for a new live Patreon app and an archive classic with Marxist writer Mike Davis, who passed away last week from a werewolf attack. Ah, uh, no, actually, it was esophageal cancer. Uh, that's still spooky, though. Today on the show... I'm playing an interview with the king in yellow, or at least the king of a yellowed-out 1986 lecture called U.S. Interventionism, the Third World, and the USSR that you'll find on YouTube if you search for Michael Parenti, Yellow Speech. It's an all-timer, very recommended. No mask. Did you know that Michael Parenti was on This Is Hell? I didn't know until this very morning. Uh, So let's listen to that one together. Here's Michael Parenti talking with Chuck way back in November 2005... On the line with us right now is Michael Parenti. Michael Parenti is an author of some 18 books, uh, 250-plus articles, a media critic. uh, KPFA Radio calls him, quote, a tough, hilarious, right-on mix of scholar and street. Wednesday, November 16th, Michael will be at Glenn Ellen's College of DuPage in SRC 2800, 425 Fowell Boulevard, to discuss the darker myths of empire. And then on Thursday, November 17th, also at 7 p.m., Michael will be here in Chicago at Loyola University's Damon Hall, 6525 North Sheridan in Finnegan Auditorium. Michael will discuss images of Iraq, truth, and propaganda. You want to read more of uh, Michael's work, you can find uh, links to all of his books as well as his most recent articles by going to michaelparenti.org. Good morning, Michael. Hello, how are you doing? Uh, pretty good. I'm, uh, it's uh, really early in the morning out there in California. I just want to tell you, I really appreciate you being on. And uh, we've had your son, uh, Christian, on a couple of times. Uh, and he has been a fantastic guest and a really great supporter of this show. And we're really glad to have you on this morning. Well, good. Thanks a lot. Uh, Michael, you have uh, uh, your your piece, uh, Right Wing Judicial Activism. There's three of your most recent articles I really want to focus on this morning, and then some of your more general views. But uh, in your piece, Right Wing Judicial Activism, you write that President Bush, while he was nominating Harriet Myers, uh, President Bush prattled on about his judicial philosophy and how he wanted jurists to be strict constructionists who cleave close to the Constitution as opposed to loose 
constructionist liberals who use the court to uh, advance their ideological agenda. And you continue, quote, it is time to inject some reality into this issue. In fact, though most of it, through most of its history, the Supreme Court has engaged in the wildest conservative judicial activism in defense of privileged groups. How are these groups that President Bush has been nominating, either for the Supreme Court or the federal bun- uh, bench, activist judges? Because what we are hearing within the media, and I know that's a really simple question to uh, explain, but what we're hearing from the media is that activist means liberal and constructivist and somebody who adheres to what the framers of the Constitution, the founders of this country, uh, really want. Those are conservatives. So how is that not necessarily the case? Uh, All through the history of the Supreme Court and the other federal courts, you have example after example of conservative judges inventing law, inventing concepts, inventing interpretations that are, can't be justified by the laws or by the Constitution. And I gave examples through that article. Um, take, for instance, the uh, equal protection and, and due process of the 14th Amendment, which says that the states can't deny anybody due process and, and the like. Um, and equal protection meant uh, treatment of equality. Well, the Supreme Court came up and said, well, you could have segregation, though. Segregation is a racist thing. That's not a strict construction of the Constitution. That's inventing a whole new concept, saying they can be separate as long as they're equal, which they rarely were, by the way, uh, segregated facilities for blacks and whites. Um, let's take the concept of executive privilege, which uh, which Bush is, is who called himself a strict constructionist. Bush has has been using to refrain from handing over documents about the people he has nominated for the Supreme Court. With Roberts, he's done this with Alito, and with Harriet Myers especially, he would not hand over documents. He'd say. It's executive privilege. Executive privilege is a concept which says that the executive doesn't have to be accountable to anybody, that the executive can have secrecy, that the executive does not have to publicize any kind of information if it doesn't want to. Uh, That concept, executive privilege, was invented out of thin air by conservative jurists and has been upheld who, uh, especially conservative judges who want to expand the power, the unaccountable power of the presidency. It's, it's written into no law. There's no law that talks about executive privilege, and there's nowhere in the Constitution does the concept exist. So there, that's activism. You're inventing, you're inventing interpretations. Let's take the concept of, of, um, of uh, the corporation, Corporations suddenly had rights of human beings. That corporations had the right to free speech. Corporations had the right to um, independence uh, or 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 free from any kind of social regulation because they were persons. Now, a corporation isn't a person, but the word person appears in the um, U.S. Constitution in the 14th Amendment and in the first 10 amendments repeatedly, person 
No person shall be denied due process. No person shall be denied equal protection under the law. And the Supreme Court conservatives said person also includes also includes corporations. Well, that's not a strict construction. That's not a uh, uh, that's not adhering to the intent of the Constitution. That's playing with the language and, and changing and inventing new meanings to the language. You can't get any more fanciful than that. Uh, a person. So, so these are these are just some of the examples. Uh, and do you think this is a uh, purposeful misinterpretation, misreading of the Constitution, or do you think that this, uh, what it reveals, is a weakness or maybe a vulnerability in the Constitution because it is such a short document? It is, uh, to a certain extent, vague, and it doesn't really hold up to what pe- you know. The, the, for instance, the Constitution that the United States, the Bush administration, is running is writing for the uh, Iraq government right now is hundreds and hundreds of pages long, and ours is less than fifty pages long, you know. So uh, is this, does this reflect a vulnerability of our Constitution, or does this, you think, more so reflect a, a pur- purposeful misinterpretation of the uh, Constitution? Well, those two things are not uh, mutually exclusive. Um, the sparsity of the Constitution requires interpretations, and one's political ideology is used to guide one in making the kind of interpretations that suit one's own political views. Take the take the question. Well, no, no, and also I'll say this: um, there are there are things that are quite clear in the Constitution that have been that have been misused. Like I said, I said the equal protection under the law. And then you change that into segregation, and segregation's okay. And segregation, by its nature, cannot be equal. And that whole interpretation was changed later on. When liberals came into power and finally changed it in Brown versus Board of Education, said separate facilities are, by definition, inherently unequal. You're, you're, you're declaring inequality when you say... One group will have to sit in the back of the bus. They get half of the bus seats, and the other group gets the front half of the seats, uh, which, by the way, as I said, was never really the case. During rush hour, they would often change the seating and allow more and more whites and blacks had to stand uh, and the like. That's, a, um, that's not a vulnerability of the Constitution. That's a deliberate reading or let's take uh, one last example. Um, when the conservatives on the Supreme Court said you cannot limit corporate spending in or a rich candidate's spending as much money as that rich candidate wants to on his own campaign when running for office because spending money is a form of speech. Now, now where, where in the Constitution... Does that concept exist? And where in law does that exist? And where in the English language does that exist, if you're a strict constructionist? And it was Justice Stevens, the liberal, who said the obvious strict construction point. He said, money is not speech. Money is property. Um, So 
more often than not, you'd find that the liberals were, were the ones who were adhering to the Constitution, and it was the conservatives who, who were inventing these things. There also has been, by the way, over the years, a way of undoing Congress's legislation. Congress would pass liberal legislation, uh, and uh, the conservatives would bring it to a conservative court, to conservative judges, and they would reinterpret it and undermine it and overthrow it and say, no, this, this can't be. They would just reinterpret they wouldn't declare it unconstitutional. They would give it a strict interpretation, say, no, this law was not intended to this or that and the other thing. And then suddenly Congress was faced with um, with a, uh, a new interpretation. And then once you got conservative presidents in office, Congress would try to re-legislate it and say, yes, this is what we meant, despite what the court is saying. And then the conservative president, whether it was Reagan or one of the two Bushes, would veto the new legislation. So this was another way of undermining past laws, uh, even if you couldn't get them through the Congress. You'd, you'd, you'd get them into the courts, and then, then Congress would have to act again, and then the president would have a chance to veto it. So you had this kind of, all this kind of activism. The conservative judges have been the most judicial activists there is. Look, for instance, at now their intent of, of undermining Roe versus Wade, of, of deciding that there isn't a privacy clause, there isn't an implicit privacy clause in the Constitution. Well, there is. It's a very explicit one. Nobody talks about it, by the way. But the Ninth Amendment says any of the rights that haven't been explicated in these Ten Amendments, those rights belong to the people. But everybody looks at the Tenth Amendment, which talks about reserved powers. But on rights, it says, the Ninth Amendment says, all all rights that have not been mentioned belong to the people and adhere with the people. So the right to privacy, uh, when people say, well, where in the Constitution is that? You can say, well, the Ninth Amendment, there it is. It says any right not explicitly mentioned. And certainly the right to privacy has been uh, an inherent right in the common law, in law, for centuries, you know. We're speaking with Michael Parenti, political scientist, historian, media critic. Check out his website at michaelparenti.org. Uh, his most recent books, let me just uh, list these off real quick. Uh, most recent books include Super Patriotism, The Assassination of Julius Caesar, The Terrorism Trap, and Democracy for the Few. And you have a new book coming out this fall as well, correct? Yes, it should be out in another month or so called The Culture Struggle. The Culture Struggle, and that's going to be out on New Press, is that right? Uh, no, that'll be out with uh, Seven Stories Press. Okay. The Culture Struggle on Seven Stories Press, so if people want to find out more about that book as well. And that means that I'll be getting, uh, I'll be bugging you in the near future for uh, having you back on when that book comes out, Michael. Okay, uh, am I coherent enough here? Uh, yeah, definitely. Okay. A little coffee out on the West Coast always helps, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Michael, uh, one of the things that you were uh, mentioning, or, or, well, we were talking about the, the difference between constructivists and activists. And one of the things that uh, bugs me about this labeling, and you're also a media critic, is that you would think that with so many 
in, let's say, broadcast media, with so many lawyers behind the camera and with so many uh, broadcasters who have uh, law backgrounds and who are lawyers themselves, you would think that this kind of labeling uh, of, you know, conservative judges are constructivists who are trying to be the guardians of the original uh, written law and liberal judges are the activists who are trying to undermine the law for their own ideology. You would think that with that many attorneys in the, uh, in, in the media itself, that they would be able to do the most cursory analysis and show that that isn't correct, and then they wouldn't use those labels, those terms that are obviously being applied for political propagandistic ways. Why is it that with that much legal training and that much uh, a, a potential scrutiny from the legal community within the media on these kind of labels, do we not see a more uh, coherent explanation of these terms and to show that neither the liberals or the uh, conservatives can really lay claim to constructivism or action? Activism. Well, because these conservative leaders repeatedly and repeatedly make this false comparison, and they're just not challenged. And it would be nice if we got uh, if we got some of the Democrats uh, making or making some of the statements I made today. Sometimes they do; they just don't get um, they don't get the same. Excuse me. They don't get the same publicity for their comments that the right-wing president of the United States does, or some key uh, chair of the judicial Senate Judicial Committee, or whatever. Um, and and that's because, of course, the media tends to tends to fall in with that. Also, there there is a tendency in the media once once a a concept takes hold. Uh, why then? Why then? That's that becomes their easy handle to use. It's a combination of simplicity, laziness, and the conservative bias of those who own and control the media. Uh, you're concerned about uh, your gen- your. I would say your general concern is about the corporate control or the corporate impact or uh, that they have on. Uh, justices on our judicial process uh, and how pro-corporate many of the uh, justices that the right does put into power, how pro-corporate these people are. Um, for instance, when Judge Roberts was nominated, some of his critics were pointing out uh, you know, these tons of companies that he had stocks in and how he's going to have to recuse himself on several occasions because he's going to have conflicts of interest when it comes to uh, court cases that have to do- deal with the corporations that he has investments in. Do you think that the lasting legacy of the Bush appointments to the federal bench, to the Supreme Court, do you think the the lasting legacy is going to be more so one of continuing and expanded corporate control over the public space, or is it going to be something like uh, Roe v. Wade or school prayer, or are those just red herrings for, you know, a very pro-corporate agenda that is actually going to be applied, while Roe v. Wade and school prayer are just going to be kind of used for political reasons only? Um, I think there's no consistent principle in Bush's agenda. There is no consistent principle in the perspective of these conservative right-wing federal judges either. Um, 
that's consistent with the Constitution. When it comes to things like Roe versus Wade, when it comes to things like uh, individual human rights, uh, look what they're doing right now. There's no right. There's no right to to appeal to the courts. Even the conservative Supreme Court said there was a right for the uh, captives uh, in Guantanamo Bay to, to appeal to the court and say, look, we're innocent. You've been holding us for three years. We want a hearing. What's your proof that we're terrorists or something? Um, uh, uh, look at the way they look at the way they they play here. They play fast and loose, and um, and disregard rights for certain groups, and then uh, and then they want to expand the prerogatives and rights for other groups, namely corporate moneyed interests. So that's the only consistency. If if it involves the rights and prerogatives of big, rich corporations and wealthy interests, why then Then they are loose constructionists or strict constructionists, whatever advance those interests. If it involves the rights of protesters, dissidents, uh, individual rights, people who are challenging the uh, military state, uh, people who are challenging the uh, interventionist wars and policies, then then they seek to constrict and eliminate those rights by arguing that there are greater necessities and threats that means we cannot indulge the luxury of having individual rights. You know, and when it comes to constructivists, too, there, there are two things that I uh, have been thinking about recently. One is war powers. And you would think that if the, you had these constructivist judges, if they really were constructivist, get on the bench, they would start siding with the, you know, uh, the Senate and the House as far as who has the power to go to war. And secondly, you would think if they were real constructivists, they would uh, strip this idea of citizenship of the corporation, uh, take that citizenship away, because that is certainly not a strict constructivist idea. So uh, it, it, in in a sense, there, there really are no strict constructivists, either on the left or the right, when it comes to ju- judicial nominees. Isn't that true? I would say that's, that's probably truer than, than, than to create this fiction which says, oh, we conservatives, we're strict constructionists, we're intentionalists. You know, we go back to the intent of the Constitution. Well, look at the Constitution. If, if, if the English language means anything, it says Congress. Congress alone shall have the power to declare war. The, the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution, the delegates uh, in Philadelphia in May 1787, did not, never intended for the president to have the sole power to take the entire nation into war. The, the power of one individual in public office to take an entire nation to war is the power of a dictator or an absolute monarch. And they were very explicit that Congress shall have the power. And yet we see the president committing troops and and pursuing wars um, under the War Powers Act, under the executive privilege, under the inherent right, inherent rights as commander in chief, and inventing all sorts of of ways of taking the nation to war. 
I mean, now we're not talking about a little interpretation of about a particular law, how it would apply to certain people in terms of spending or this or that. We're talking about a, a huge, a huge life or death issue that involves the nation and involves the commitment of hundreds of billions of dollars of our treasure and involves the commitment of the blood, sweat, tears, and lives of our of our sons and daughters and brothers and husbands and wives or whatever else, you know. Right. Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, speaking of uh, lives and deaths, you uh, also you wrote a piece in September on uh, Katrina, and that piece, uh, September fourth article, I believe it was in uh, September third on in uh, Z Magazine, was entitled "How the Free Market Killed uh, New Orleans." And you write that the free market played a crucial role in the destruction of New Orleans and the death of thousands of its residents. And we've talked about this uh, on our program before. And but you bring up a really interesting point that in uh, make sure I get this right. In Cuba, uh, when an especially powerful hurricane hit that island in 2004, the Castro government, abetted uh, by neighborhood citizen com- committees and local Communist Party cadres, evacuated 1.5 million people, more than 10% of the country's population. The Cubans lost 20,000 homes to that hurricane, but, had a, but not a single life was lost. A heartening feat that went largely unmentioned in the U.S. press. Um, yet what we do see, and I know that you blame uh, neoliberalism, privatization, free market ideology, uh, whatever you want to call it, on uh, many of the deaths that happened in New Orleans. But what we see, again, in the media, and as a media critic, I'm curious how you feel about this, uh, what we do see in the media is the failure of the government to get the uh, federal, the, to, to get FEMA into the affected areas and to help out people, and yet the success of Walmart to bring aid to those people. Thereby, they're trying to reinforce this idea that privatization and business can do things when the government cannot. How do you feel about when you see these Walmart stories uh, juxtaposed into this, uh, you know, relief campaign for Katrina when your feelings are that a free market actually uh, undermined the ability to get people out and to make sure that uh, lives were saved after Katrina? Well, first of all, Walmart would have never sent those trucks with fresh water and some other minimal supplies if they had not in recent times been under heavy fire from public protesters who have been protesting the terrible way that they have been treating their personnel and the enormous, enormous profits. You know, five of four of the top richest people in America are Waltons, and the Waltons are the people who own Walmarts. In terms of the profits they've made in recent years, uh, I mean, every year, every year, they, I think each one of them makes about $10 billion in profits. That's on the backs. That's on the backs of, of these uh, uh, poor um, women who are, making, who are making five bucks an hour. So, so, let, so let's get that straight. Second, whatever aid that Walmart sent to uh, New Orleans, it really was very little. Um, private business could not. Private business could send some things, blankets and some, some water and some food at, at times. But this could not de- it does not deal with the structural problems 
uh, of uh, and and the free market can deal with the whole. How do you reconstruct the whole city? How do you build levees that that will not uh, cave in? Um, uh, you know, how do you get labor working and, uh, and housing set up and the like? So. The free mar- by free market, of course, it's not a free market. Right, right. Uh, it, uh, it's it's free market in quotes, meaning the label is slung is slung around by the Bush administration to mean government shouldn't bother with any social programs. Government has no social responsibilities on these things, and people should fend for themselves. And to hell with them, and devil take the hindmost. That's that's their version of the free market. Right. Uh, another uh, aspect of Katrina, uh, you write that, quote, it was not until day three that the relatively affluent telecasters began to realize that tens of thousands of people had failed to flee because they had nowhere to go and no means of getting there. With hardly any cash at hand or no motor vehicle to call their own, they had to sit tight and hope for the best. In the end, the free market did not work so well for them. And after Katrina, many critics said that the reason that the Bush administration did not react as quickly as it should have to Katrina is because they are from the uh, you know the halls of power of the rich and wealthy and they and they're incredibly wealthy people. Uh, the Barbara Bush comment about how people uh, the ref, the uh, evacuees were better off by being in the Houston Astrodome that reflects this kind of disconnect between uh, the the more well off and the less well off, the rich and the poor in this country. But also in your statement again, you, you point out the telecasters. It took them a while. Uh, wealthy telecasters to figure out uh, what the problem was down there. So is do you think the problem is more so one of uh, free market ideology or is it more so one of a, uh, a cultural divide uh, that gets in the way that is an obstruction between the understanding of those who are rich to understand what the needs and challenges of the poor are so they can administer to those needs? Or, I mean, or are those two things kind of go hand in hand, free market ideology and uh, social divide? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That, uh, by the way, is my voice coming in consistently, Chuck? I, I, yours is fading in and out. That's my fault. That was my fault. I'm sorry. I was having a little okay. trouble with my microphone. Go oh, ahead. You're fine. Uh, okay. Well, I, I think, yeah, those two things are not mutually exclusive, that uh, uh, the class divide and the experience between a telecaster who makes 150000 a year uh, or, or maybe half a million, it depends. If, if he's an anchor man, he makes two or three or four or five million a year. Um, the, the divide between that person and a poor working person in New Orleans, uh, the class divide is a huge one, and it also has a whole class culture attached to it, attitudes about how you should be and how you should. You take, take the fact that um, uh, what they overlook is that these poor people work. Most of them have jobs. Uh, most of them had jobs. That's how they lived. They weren't living, uh, you know, it wasn't George Bush who was supporting them. They were supporting themselves. And if they were poor, it's because they received low wages and had to pay high taxes and, and had to pay high rents and high prices on things. Look what's happening right now. They're finding what the great shortage is 
in New Orleans, what is the great, one of the great obstacles that they're facing as far as rebuilding New Orleans? They're having a problem. And what is it? It's labor. You know, you've, you've driven all these human beings out, and they're all resettled in, all over the country. Well, those were the people who did the cooking and the cleaning and the building and the scrubbing and the delivering and and uh, and what, whatever else that needed to be done. Those people are all gone, and a lot of businesses in New Orleans now are are advertising needed, someone hiring, uh, workers needed, uh, so forth. So this is, suddenly it occurs to them that uh, New Orleans, the economy of New Orleans was marketed in the French Quarter, and that's where you got the clubs, the strip joints, the jazz, the great jazz clubs, the great restaurants, um, a lot of the boutiques, a lot of the little old bed and breakfasts and all that. That was in the French Quarter. But that economy was created outside the French Quarter. I remember when I lived in, when, I mean, when I visited New Orleans, you could, you can go to remote neighborhoods into a little hole in the wall restaurant and you could have a bowl of gumbo that was every bit as delicious as what you'd get on Bourbon Street, uh, or, or what you'd get at Antoine's or something. Uh, you realize that this, the cooking and the, the great foods and, and the great music and all that, that came from, all over New Orleans, um, and that's all been that's all been shattered and 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 dispersed and destroyed. Uh, just just a couple more questions for you. We're speaking with Michael Parenti. Find uh, more of his work by going if you can find all of his articles by going to michaelparenti.org as well as links to all of his books. He's going to be here in Chicago in the Chicago area next Wednesday and Thursday, and I'll give you I'll give you a little bit more uh, details on that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, and then back in August, you wrote a piece that I thought was amazing, and I I'm, you know I, I have like twenty five pages of questions for you, Michael, and we could go on for a couple of hours about uh, your work. It's just it really is incredible. It's it's some of the best writing that. I've seen in a long time, especially your monthly columns. Uh, they're really, they're really great. And I would suggest that anybody who is a regular listener of our show should look for your columns that uh, show up at Z Magazine uh, every month, I believe. Uh, your August fourth article that was entitled "Why the Corporate Rich Oppose Environmentalism" is, I think, an exceptional article. And even though we're not going to be able to get into it much today, I would really suggest that our listeners uh, check out this article because I think this makes a lot of very valid points. But one of the things that you write. Is is that, quote, in the long run, the corporate wealthy indeed will be sealing their own doom. And that's as far as their impact, their effect that is going to be uh, permanently upon the environment. Uh, along with everybody else's, they're going to seal their own doom. However, like us all, they live not in the long run, but in the here and now. What is at stake for them is something more immediate than global ecology. It is global capital accumulation. The fate of the biosphere seems a far-off abstraction compared to the fate of one's immediate investments. And that's where your quote ends. So is this – is capitalism just exacerbating the problem and what it really is is a, is a, a, a frailty of the human condition that we can only – we can't see what our long-term impact will be in our life and in, in, in any different realm when we look at our life. Uh, and then just capitalism exacerbates the weakness of the human condition. Is, is that what you're getting to? I think that might be a good way. Well, uh, of course, capitalism in some respects creates – 
that condition. It's not an inherent, necessarily inherent human condition. Uh, human beings were, 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 were pretty happy with uh, non-polluting uh, mass transit electric car systems that, that Los Angeles had, for instance, 90 square miles of one of the finest electric car systems. Uh, it was quiet. It wasn't polluting. It was efficient. And uh, But that wasn't very profitable, and that was run by the city. So the big corporations like General Motors and Firestone, the tire companies and the gas companies, um, they ripped up, they bought up these franchises, uh, privatized them, tore them all up, and got people to um, buy cars, and in addition pay billions of dollars to build super highways. Uh, people don't have no idea of how much their highways cost them, they're incredible, incredible amounts. So... So it, it really is capitalism creating creating new needs that are more profitable for the capitalists. At the same time, it is true that human beings are idiots when it comes to cars. They're all crazy. Uh, they all not in America anymore. People are kind of a lot of people are kind of sick and bored and resentful that they have to own a car. It's so expensive. It costs so much. Um, and the like, but you look at China now. Uh, the, the Chinese middle class is going crazy. Everybody has to have a car. I have friends who go to China regularly who are Chinese who say there are even people who don't need a car, but they want to get one now because it's it's the big, big consumer symbol. So you have throughout the third world, the the big rage is now uh, cars, cars. Um, so it's true. If if you pose a rational uh, uh, ecologically more sound mass transit system or private cars, you're going to get all sorts of people uh, grabbing for the cars. A car gives you the instant mobility, the status, uh, the empowerment, and, and all that crap. Um, it also gives you pollution and death and maiming and accidents and incredible expenses, uh, uh, many Americans are poor because of their cars. I mean, they're working for their cars to pay the insurance on it, to pay the maintenance, to pay to, to pay the monthly payments on the car and the like. It's amazing what Americans go through for their cars to make sure that a few people who sit at Ford and General Motors and, and Exxon and Mobil and such get richer and richer and richer. You know, and I, as a kid growing up in uh, Detroit, I always heard the stories of how there was a great streetcar system in Detroit, and then they tore it up and they sold it to uh, Mexico City. And the story, the urban myth in Detroit was always $50. They sold the whole thing for $50. You know, that's not true. But they tore up the whole uh, streetcar system because, uh, you know, as the story goes on the street in Detroit, that the big three said, listen, you're the motor city. You cannot have electric streetcars in your city. You have to be the motor city. You have to have motorized buses and they tore up a great streetcar system. And to this day, Detroit has one of the worst uh, mass transit systems along with one of the worst of many other features of their infrastructure. One last question for you, Michael. Uh, we've been speaking with Michael Parenti. Check out his articles at michaelparenti.org. He is going to be here in the Chicago area on Wednesday, November 16th. Michael will be at Glen Ellen's College of DuPage in SRC 2800, 425 Falwell Boulevard to discuss the dark
darker myths of empire. And then on Thursday, November 17th at 7 p.m., Michael will be at Loyola University's Damon Hall, 6525 North Sheridan and Finnegan Auditorium. Michael will discuss at that event images of Iraq, truth, and propaganda. We have both those events right at the front page of our website. This is hell.net. And uh, the direct link for Michael, all you have to do is just click on his name at our website, and it'll take you directly to his website. One last question for you, Michael, and it is our question from hell. Are you ready, sir? I know it's early in the morning, but are you ready? Yeah, sure. All right. Uh, so, uh, in this, it was provoked by a listener of ours. Uh, according to, in uh, the quote that I got from him was from Wikipedia. So, who knows if this is an accurate quote or not? It says that in black shirts and reds, uh, Michael Parenti suggests that common uh, estimates of the number of deaths under uh, Joseph Stalin are gross exaggerations, and stresses that the overwhelming majority of inmates in gulag labor camps and colonies were sent there because of uh, be, uh, based on convictions for non-political offenses. That is to say, only a small minority were political prisoners. He does not offer his own estimates of the overall number of deaths under the duration of Stalinism, except to claim that the number of actual executions between 1921 and 1953 was uh, something like 800,000. I, I thought that was a little bit contradictory of a statement. He also duly, not on your part, on the part of Wikipedia, he also duly notes that the Soviet Union made dramatic gains in literacy, industrial rights, health care, women's rights under Stalin's leadership and criticizes Leon Trotsky as, quote, among the more authoritarian Bolshevik leaders. So the question from hell from one of our listeners written by Ray, who's been listening to the show for a long time, is uh, Mr. Parenti. He says, do you believe that the gulags reported by Solzhenitsyn and others were real and really as bad as they are portrayed by him? Chuck, Chuck, I... Yes, sir. Chuck, I'm having a terrible time hearing you. Can, you, can your listeners hear you? Because your voice is going in and out. Uh, I apologize. I, I, it must be a problem on our end. Uh, no. So his question is... Well, well, well could, I, could I answer the, the quote? The quote is a total distortion and misquote. I do, not, I do not say it's a gross exaggeration. I say that the figures that have been given uh, regarding the victims are all substantiated, and I'm trying to substantiate them. Some people say there were 10 million victims. Others say there were 40 million. Others say there were 5 million. Uh, And so, and what all we have is several scholars who I cite in my book who opened up all the records of the Gulag, and what they came up with was 800,000 people have died in the Gulag since 1923. And... And I do not say that almost all of them are non-political. I say the figure, that figure includes political and non-political. I do not say, give any breakdown. That is a terrible distortion in Wikipedia. Uh, and it was a real, real dirty, dirty and dishonest hatchet job that was done. You know, I, I knew, from reading your work, I knew that that was inaccurate and misleading. And that's why I wanted to make it our question from hell for you, because one of our listeners asked it. And uh, these kind of words, you know, you're not, obviously, you're not the first person I've seen this done with. But uh, to the extent that these words have been put in your mouth, I would uh, put it on a parallel with uh, when people say that Noam Chomsky is a Holocaust uh, apologist, or that Norman Finkelstein is uh, somebody who doesn't believe that the Holocaust happened. You know, that is the distortion 
distortion, the level of this distortion that uh, I, I, that's the only level of distortion I could compare it to. Michael, I just want to tell you, it's a, a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Uh, when your new book comes out, I'll be bugging you again in the near future. Say hello to your son, uh, Christian. Oh, I certainly uh, will. Okay. Lockdown America was one of my favorite books of the last five years. And, uh, Good book, yes. Uh, incredible book. And I really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. It truly is an honor. All right. Thank you. All right. Take Bye-bye. care. That was Chuck talking with Michael Perney back in 2005. Uh, we've also had Christian Perney on a bunch of times, too. But that was the one time Chuck talked with Mike. If you get a chance to go look at that yellow interview, I think if you just type in Michael Perney 1986 into YouTube, you'll get the whole thing. It is uh, really worth watching. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Lindsay will be back tomorrow. She's going to be playing an interview with Jenny O'Dell on how to do nothing. We do have a question from hell for you this week. What are you doing with your extra hour from Daylight Savings Time, which ends at 2 a.m. on Sunday, November 6th? What are you doing with your extra hour from Daylight Savings Time? Winner gets their choices of This Is Hell merch, which you can see at thisishell.com slash pages slash support. Got to get rid of that pages part of there, huh? All right. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, We are going to be back next week. Actually, Patreon Chuck's back this week, so it's Thursday or Friday. He'll be back. And then uh, all new material next week. Have a good time, everybody. Stay safe. Watch out for ghosties and ghoulies. Okay. Bye. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.